Welcome back to a new episode of This Is Her Story. And I'm thinking of something that Seth Godin says, that shipped is better than perfect. Oh my word, I think I have edited this episode to death and finally decided, all right, this is what you get. So the tables were turned a little bit in this episode. My friend Jennifer Norex interviewed me for the podcast and I share my story or parts of my story and the journey towards ordination since I've been a minister. It was fun to just sit down since we've known each other for such a long time, uh, 18, 19 years, something like that. And uh, and now and now she's on her own journey towards ordination and it's been exciting to watch her move through that process or as she as she is moving through that process now um, so anyway we just had a good time with the episode and i hope that you will enjoy it as much as we enjoyed recording it enjoy the episode we really need to tell better stories instead of complaining about it right what if we right. just start telling the stories and really flood the airwaves with something different? So anyway, thanks you so much for helping me. Thanks but. for letting me interview you. I'm kind of excited about it, so it'll be fun. Oh, so welcome to your own podcast. I wanted to say that <laughs> up front. I was going to ask you to talk about your spiritual background of your childhood when you were growing up. My spiritual background is kind of complicated, so I would say I'm, I was raised Catholic, but unchurched Catholic. In second grade, my mom's mom said, Marlene, those girls need to make their sacraments. And <laughs> so we found ourselves in catechism. And I was, of course, I was a year behind because you start catechism in first grade, mm-hmm. so I had to do double work that first year to make up so that I could make my first communion. But we only went for catechism. And it's, for people who aren't familiar with the Catholic background, it's kind of like Sunday school, but not really. Mm. So it's kind of its own thing. And you just go September through May, like the school year. What do you learn about in catechism? We learn about all the sacraments. Kind of learn about some of the saints. Mm. You do learn a few of the Bible stories, mm-hmm. but mostly it's you're mostly focusing on your sacraments, what we believe as Catholics. Mm-hmm. We do spend time in the Gospels, mm-hmm. so if nothing else, you you walk away knowing Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are about Jesus. Mm-hmm. But like when I think back to the stories that I remember, it's the Good Shepherd, those kind of stories. I don't really remember the cross. I mean, I remember Jesus hanging on the cross, Mm -hmm. but I don't remember knowing how he got there or why he got there or Mm -hmm. anything like that. So, but, but we didn't, but that was it. So like we didn't go on Sundays. We didn't go Christmas and Easter. If we were going to make a sacrament, then we would go for like two or three Sundays beforehand. So we knew when to stand and when to sit. (laughs) Kind of some of the when to genuflect, all of that stuff, just to kind of like a refresher. But we didn't have a Bible in our home. Mm-hmm. We didn't pray before meals. We didn't talk about God. Mm-hmm. It was not a part of our life at all. So 
So I talk about I really was unchurched in that sense. Mm -hmm. And then in my teens, shortly after my parents got a divorce, I became an atheist. And that was pretty much how I lived Hmm. until after I got married. Okay. So I've heard you say that you were an atheist agnostic. So was there a part of you that always thought maybe there's a God or were you pretty convinced there wasn't? I think I was convinced that there was not a God, but I still had a hunger for spiritual things. Mm -hmm. And so that's why sometimes I'll refer to myself as an atheist agnostic because Mm -hmm. I did have a hunger for spiritual things. Mm -hmm. And anytime there was a show or a movie or or a book or something that would talk about spiritual things, Mm -hmm. there was that hunger there of, well, maybe there's something more. So, so I guess there was a part of me that still wanted to believe Mm -hmm. that there was, that, you know, God existed. So, so can you talk about, um, your experiences that led you to Christianity and away from atheism? Uh, Shortly after I met my husband, he, he was pretty active in the Catholic Church. Hmm. So I would not say that he had a relationship with Christ, but he was a nominal Christian, nominal Catholic. Mm-hmm. He, he used to walk the priest. He had a pretty good relationship with the priest at his church. Huh. And so he would go every day after school and he would walk his dog for him. I, th- I think it was one of those um, seeing faith in a different way mm-hmm. lived out. His mom was really involved in the church. And so just seeing it from a different light started making me think, okay, well, maybe, just made me think more about whether or not God was there and existed. And, mm-hmm. But it was really my mom's conversion that started to change my thinking hmm. and stir my heart. After I graduated from high school, uh, I graduated, well, I'm not telling when I graduated. <laughs> uh, so anyway, the fall after I graduated <laughs> from high school, my mom's mom passed away. And kind of unexpectedly, she went in for shoulder surgery and developed an infection. And they discovered that she had a massive tumor. Mm. So they removed the cancer. But by that, I think pretty much it was everywhere. Huh. And she was gone within a few weeks. Uh, And so that played a big role in my mom. And that was the grandma who had wanted you guys to make First Communion? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, she was, there was no doubt in my mind that that grandmother prayed for us regularly. Mm -hmm. That we would know God. Mm -hmm. And and even in her, you know, you think though, this is, you know, my, my grandparents were married during the depression, so early thirties and the Catholic faith was very different and your faith was really private, but they're very active. So like when I think about my grandmother, I don't know that she had the evangelical definition of a personal relationship with Christ, Mm -hmm. but she very much had faith in God and a relationship with God. Mm -hmm. You know, whether or not she prayed the sinner's prayer uh, I don't know, mm-hmm. but I know that she prayed and she trusted him and she had faith in God. And um, so I have no doubt that I'll see her again. If I guess that's what I'm saying. But she died and had a, 
obviously impacted my mom. Sure. But my mom went back to church. Hmm. So she, she said, I'm going to go back to church. And that's really when her faith came alive. So when my mom went back to church, she found a personal relationship with God. And like her life changed. She really started living differently hmm. and got involved in prayer groups and Bible studies and um, made some major life changes decisions based on her new relationship with God, hmm. which had never been like, that wasn't a reality. Uh-huh. I, I think people, if people are listening to this who are evangelicals, that just seems normal, right? Yeah. Like you pray about a major decision and then you do it, whatever God tells you to do. Right. Well, that was not our MO. You uh-huh. did what was best for us and what we thought was best in our situation. Mm-hmm. And maybe you got some advice from other people, but we never prayed about a decision. Uh-huh. And my mom prayed about it and ended up moving to Arizona out of this, what she thought was, was God's direction, which I think it was. But that was really profound. So I think that it made me start thinking about what is this relationship with God that it, through prayer you would up and your life lived, grew up in Michigan all her life and pick up and move. To another state mm-hmm. because this is, what, this is what you felt God was calling you to do. So I think that's probably the was beginning seed. And mm-hmm. she would talk about Jesus and her relationship with with God. Mm-hmm. And then my boyfriend at the time, fiance, mm-hmm. <laughs> who is now my husband, <laughs> um, his oldest brother and his wife came to faith in Christ and it was pretty radical transformation and they just started talking to us about Jesus and there was never uh, any condemnation Rob and I were already living together at the time you know mm-hmm. so they never condemned how we were living mm-hmm. um, we you know we drank and partied and did all that stuff they never condemned us or criticized us they just kept talking to us about Jesus and how much he loved us and how much he wanted to be a part of our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they talked about their hunger uh, and just the joy that they had in this new relationship mm-hmm. they found with Christ. Mm-hmm. And it was pretty, I mean, it was pretty radical for them. They got, they came to faith in Christ in the Methodist church mm-hmm. and I mean, they were Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, wow. by midweek, small group, hmm. uh, the whole thing. And so they gave us a Bible for our first Christmas that we were married. Hmm. And I remember trying to read it a little bit. I read the book of Revelation first. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I think I'm just going to put this back on the shelf. <laughs> That's a weird place to start. <laughs> but then about a year after... Rob and I were married. I was, I, I went to a really deep depression and was ready to, I, well, I started to put my affairs in order. So I quit my job. I, we adopted a dog. I don't know. Maybe that was my idea of like not leaving him alone. I don't know, mm-hmm. but really made, began to make plans to end my life. 
And Rob was gone because at that time he rodeoed. Uh-huh. All right, for those people who don't know, yes, my husband rode rodeo, bareback rider, all that stuff. <laughs> we talk about that later. But he was at a rodeo. <laughs> and I, I was going to end my life that weekend. But I, I, now I know that it was the spirit that intervened, but I thought, maybe I'll go to church and give this Jesus thing a try. Mm-hmm. And so I went to church that Sunday, and I don't even remember, and I went to the Catholic church, because that's what I knew. I think that was important, actually, that I, I still felt welcome to receive communion, even mm-hmm. though... I didn't really believe in God. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I was, I would say I, maybe I have faith in God, but it was distant. I didn't mm-hmm. really know what that meant. And so I went forward and received communion. And then when I came back to my pew, I knelt down and I just prayed and said, you know, I don't really understand who this Jesus person is, but I know he has something to do with you. And so I'm just, I'm just giving my life to you, God. So wherever you want me to go, whatever you want me to do, whatever you want me to say, I just, I can't do this. And so I'm going to give this one last chance with you mm-hmm. and help me figure out who this Jesus person is. My sinner's prayer, if yeah. you will. Uh-huh. And I just, I remember leaving that day and it was, it was warm because it was July and it was sunny and everything just seemed lighter. Mm-hmm. Huh. So I went home and made coffee. Because <laughs> that's what you do. That's what you do. It's a Sunday. And, you know, I still do that on Sundays <laughs> after church. Go home and make coffee. And I took the Bible off of my shelf. And my mom had just finished a Bible study on the book of John. Mm-hmm. And I remember her saying, she she had just gotten so much out of it. And, and she'd been talking a lot about the Gospel of John and the things she had learned and what God was saying to her through it. And so I thought, well, if I want to know about Jesus, I knew Jesus. I knew the Gospels were about Jesus. Mm-hmm. I mean, if I knew nothing else, right, from uh-huh. my Catholic faith, yep. we knew what the Gospels uh-huh. were about. And so I started in John's Gospel. And it was really in John's Gospel where my eyes were open. So by the time I got to the end of that first chapter, in, in, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And you understood who the word was when you read that first chapter? When I, That uh, seems like a tough chapter to start with. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Yeah. It, well, it is, right? I mean, yeah. it, the whole... John is really... It's logic. It's mm-hmm. philosophical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would never tell anybody to start in John. Yeah. <laughs> that's what, John. Yeah, I, that's what I'm thinking. That's sort of an interesting place to start, but somehow... It made sense to you. The Lord was speaking to you through it. 14th verse. And the word became flesh. Mm-hmm. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only. So by the time I got to that verse, I understood that the word was Jesus and Jesus was God. Wow. And I had never put those together. Huh. So this idea that the word was God and Jesus was the word mm-hmm. and Jesus is God. And then finally began to put the pieces together and God died on the cross mm-hmm. and rose from the dead. Mm-hmm. That was when, it, how come no one ever told me huh. that Jesus is God in the flesh? 
you know, because his brain is an atheist. I would say, and a lot of atheists say, it's not like I was the only atheist that ever said this, but you can't touch God, you can't see God, you can't hear God. And then Jesus made all of those things obsolete. Hmm. Because there is this group of people who not only could they touch him, he touched them. Mm-hmm. They could look into his eyes. They could hear the sound of his voice. They could smell his body odor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> like, right? Like, Wow, so the Lord really specifically answered that prayer that you prayed. I mean, you call it a sinner's prayer, but to specifically request, show me who Jesus is. Yeah. And by the time you got to verse 14 of John 1, God had revealed that to you. That's that's pretty awesome. Yeah. Wow. So then um, I know you continued to attend the Catholic Church after that for several years, right? Mm-hmm. I was in the Catholic Church as a born-again believer <laughs> for four and a half years and very involved. I went to 8.30 Mass. But yeah, I was very involved. Sunday, I went to Mass. Um, I went to Wednesday night prayer group, which was more charismatic. Hmm. Then, so it was the charismatic Pentecostal slash wing of the Catholic okay. Church. Bible studies. I taught, I taught catechism for a while. Wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay. I taught second grade. Huh. Which is the first communion year. There's your full circle for you right there. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Ended up back in second grade to get away <laughs> from it. <laughs> so what brought you to the Church of the Nazarene then? Well, I've been praying for my husband mm-hmm. the whole time. Because he was like, well, that's good for you. I'm good with my own relationship with God. But I really, I mean, I I understood what it meant to know Jesus. And I understood that he did not know Jesus. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to say that he wasn't spiritual or anything like that, because he, he was. And he would go to church sometimes when he went to rodeos. Because they had, they have church at rodeos. Mm, Rodeo church. Huh. Yeah. They bring in ministers or chaplains or whatever from the area. And on Sunday morning before the rodeo, they'd have church. Oh, that's cool. So he did, he would go to that and he had, uh, some friends that were Christians. And so they would pray before they rode. But it was, it was very surface. Mm -hmm. Prayed for him a lot that he would come to church with us because it was, it's hard, especially once Michael was born. Mm-hmm. It is hard to have one parent really sold up out for mm-hmm. God and one parent not really care. Especially when you're praying about decisions for your kids. And Sure. I started praying. I changed the way I prayed. So I was praying for salvation, but then I started praying for a church. that he, God would send us to a church that he would be willing to attend where he could have a relationship with Christ also. <clears throat> because the most important thing for me was that he had a relationship with Christ, not what church I went to. Mm-hmm. I was willing to leave the Catholic Church if it meant that we could worship as a family. Mm-hmm. And so I started trying new churches, mostly to be like, will you go with me? Do you like this one? Do you like this one? <laughs> and then his younger brother started dating a gal 
who was raised Lutheran, mm-hmm. but then became Nazarene. She's got her own story about how she became a Nazarene. Okay. Yeah, she's got her own story That's about true. how she became a Nazarene. <laughs> um, but she started going to this Nazarene church and said, maybe you should come with me. I think you'll like it. So I went a few times with her, and then she dragged her boyfriend. And so he said to his brother, my husband, hey, this church is pretty pretty good. You should come here. <laughs> so they were ready to try something. Yeah. New and different to see things in a new perspective. Yeah. So you talked, you talked about your husband, uh, quite a bit and he's really, really vital and important to our congregation and we, we love him. What, um, if there are people listening to this who maybe would like to be married at some point, but aren't, what are some things for them to know about, um, choosing a spouse when you have a call to ministry? Assuming you have a call to ministry before you get married? Right. So assuming you have a call to ministry before you get married, uh, you really, really need to talk about this issue. <laughs> it's, I think it's more important than talking about money and in-laws. And I would, especially if you're, so I say male or female, you need to talk about this. Mm-hmm. Because it's like being in the military. It affects the whole family. It affects the whole family. Yeah. And at any given time, God could call you to pick up and move to another church, another state, another like way of living out your ministry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you have to be ready to say yes up front. And, but at the same time, it, it does need to be mutual. Uh, I'm very, I feel very strongly about that. You know, if, if if a man has a call, that decision <clears throat> needs to be equally weighed and prayed mm-hmm. as a couple. And the same is true if the if the woman has a call. Mm-hmm. I don't see that God calls. I want to say I don't see that God will call one and not the other, but I do think this is true. But if you're if you're married and you have a call. You have to, both of you have to say yes together. Mm-hmm. You can't just tell, we can't just tell your, our spouse, well, God called us, so you just need to do what we need to do. You, you have to get to a place where you're on the same page. I think God will wait for you mm-hmm. to get on that page. Um, I think he also may, you know, do things to hurry your decision along if you don't get with the program. <laughs> but I think that's important. And if you are a woman, who has a call mm-hmm. before you get married, you need to consider that there may come a time down the road that God will ask you to take a lead pastorate position and what your future spouse thinks about that. Mm-hmm. We interviewed someone for a potential youth pastor and very evident that she had a call in her life. Very mm-hmm. evident. And very evident that at some point God's probably going to call her to be a lead pastor. Mm-hmm. That conversation never came up in their premarital counseling because I was going to extend an invitation for a second interview and possibly to come on staff when she told me, oh, I didn't realize you're the lead pastor and my husband would never attend a church where the lead pastor is a woman. It is hard to be married when you're... 
unequally yoked. I want to say use that phrase, even though I know a lot of people use that phrase from the scriptures out of context、mm-hmm. and inappropriately. I I came to faith in Christ after I was married.、Mm-hmm. So my marriage and after、uh, and I got my call after I already had a child. So、mm-hmm. I actually think I got my call before I had my child, but was not paying attention. Whatever, <laughs> whatever. I, I God called me to be married first. I mean, that was the way it was ordained.、Mm-hmm. For whatever reason,、mm-hmm. I didn't come to faith in Christ till after we were married. So <clears throat> I have to. Keep reminding. I had to keep reminding myself of that. If God truly was calling me, then He would work out the details between my husband and I. But、mm-hmm. if you haven't said yes yet to your call, to your no, to your spouse. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> if you said yes to your call, but you haven't said yes to your spouse yet. Gotcha. Then I, I guess I put. I guess I put some weight on chronological order. Yeah. Well, and it, you kind of already touched on people who are already married when they receive their call. You're talking about, you know, waiting for the other person to kind of catch up, and、yeah. you know, relying on God's timing to work all that out. Yes, and、uh-huh. yes, and I think you need to be intentional about having the conversation.、Mm-hmm. I've seen some people who I think have a call in their lives, and I don't know if it's fear of answering the call or fear of having the conversation. But the conversation, at some point, if we're going to continue to be obedient to God,、mm-hmm. you have to have that conversation with your spouse. With your spouse, if nothing else, at least you can say prayerfully. And respectfully, I put it out there, and now it's God's. Now it's all in God's court.、Mm-hmm. And I remember saying that to God about something not too long ago, where He had asked me to do something, and I said, "Now this was your idea. Remember, I have done my part, and now you have to do your part."、Mm-hmm. But if we've never done our part, right?、Mm-hmm. Like if we're not willing to sit down with our spouse and have that conversation and say, "This is what." God is asking of me. Now the responsibility is on God and on them.、Mm-hmm. Maybe that's a little too much. I no,、know. I don't think it is. I think it's important to talk about that stuff.、Um, so, when did you then first acknowledge your, your your call to ministry, or when did you when did you notice it, or I don't know. However, you want to answer that question. How did you recognize the call to ministry? I will say it was twofold. I think within that first year of coming to faith in Christ, within six months, I had read seventy-five percent of the Bible,、hmm. and then、um, I got to some tough passages and couldn't figure it out. So I called a bunch of my friends and said, "Hey, you want to study the Bible with me?" And we'll all kind of stumble through this together. And so there was kind of that thing going on,、mm-hmm. and then. I read a book called "Wild Things Happen When I Pray," which I don't think is even in print anymore. She was just to talk about her—I want to say ministry. She was a she's a lay person,、mm-hmm. so she wasn't ordained. But 
the stuff she was talking about began to resonate with me. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, that's, I, I, I want to do that. Like there was this stirring in me of, I want to mm-hmm. do that. And maybe I'll write Bible studies or something. Mm-hmm. And then kind of just put it on the back burner. We ended up in the Nazarene church and really started getting involved in lay ministry. Mm-hmm. Different from the Catholic church. Like I, I taught catechism, mm-hmm. but I mean, you know this, and mm-hmm. most of the people listening understand this, right? Lay, maybe they don't, well, they don't understand the Catholic side of it, but lay ministry is very different in the evangelical Protestant church. And so a lot of my call and the, the stirring of my soul was met by lay ministry. Mm-hmm. I remember you were you were leading a prayer group, weren't you? Mm-hmm. A sort of prayer team for the church. I remember that. I think yeah. that was before you even started your call to ministry, wasn't it? It was. I yeah. started a prayer group because your mom was in the group, <laughs> and she and I so she and I prayed together every other Sunday for two and a half years. Hmm. I learned a lot about prayer by praying with your mom. And listening to her pray. I learned a lot about God by praying with your mom and listening to her pray. Man, we really underestimate how much we teach people when we pray with uh-huh. them. And, and then I started serving other ways. Um, we were part of a small, a small group slash Sunday school, mm-hmm. whatever you want to call it. Yep. That became Expedition. Mm hmm. Grew to like over forty people. Yeah, that was a huge part of our formation. That was a huge part of I to tell people you and I knew each other then. That was a huge part of uh, my husband and I. You know, our formation is you know sort of the foundation of our family, and um, you know that's the group we were a part of when we got married and had sort of our own family struggles. And that group was really fantastically supportive and. Uh, I, I can't overstate how, how significant that was to us. But you guys were, yeah, as you said, you're part of the original six or so that yeah, that we, started it. Rebecca was six weeks old, I think, hmm. when we started it. It was the first time Rob was involved in any kind of a a ministry like that. I mean, I had done Bible studies before then, mm-hmm. but... It was interesting because it was at a time where I was pulling back away in a, in a sense from, not from the church, not from God, but I was frustrated because I prayed, I, pr- I prayed for four and a half years before Rob came to church mm-hmm. and, and joined me. And then I, I prayed really for another two years about him going deeper in his faith. Mm-hmm. And we were in a, we were struggling. Like I got pregnant with, with our daughter and we were, we were struggling mm-hmm. in that time. And he was the one who actually said, maybe we should be involved in this new group thing that they're going to start hmm. for, it was geared towards Gen X people. Mm-hmm. That's why I was expedition. <laughs> <laughs> Expedition with a capital X. Yeah, capital Lowercase X. e, capital X. Yeah. <laughs> and so he, he was one who actually said, maybe we should be a part of this thing. I'm like, fine. <laughs> <laughs> I think when we joined, 
uh, the group was studying a book about sanctification. Yeah, I think Cindy was teaching then, right? Uh, Mark was, yeah. Mark and Cindy were. So in the beginning, we rotated our, we rotated out who was going to facilitate. Okay. And I was one of them, and then the Riddells, mm-hmm. and Bill Keith. Oh, Bill. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then things started happening with ministry for mm-hmm. me, so. And that was around the time, shortly before that is when the Burbas started attending, mm-hmm. and so they, they kind of didn't take over. Yeah. We handed everything over. Right, to right, them. right. Instead, they took over in a welcoming, in a way that they were welcome to take over. <laughs> we're like, here, do you want to do this? Yes, let us answer for you. Well, that was God's timing, right? I mean, it was that you were needing to move on to some other things. and After Michael was born, we couldn't get pregnant again. And and so I said, I'm going back to school, and I'm going to write Bible studies. So kind of that thing started coming oh, back okay. again. And so I did. I enrolled in a local Bible college, Christian Ed or something like that. But it was basically their pastor, mm-hmm. their pastoral degree degree, but mm-hmm. they didn't call it pastoral degree so that you could get state grants. But I was only a year in when I got when I got pregnant with Rebecca. So mm-hmm. it was kind of a weird I'm gonna go back and do Bible studies and then I got pregnant and, and then I took a year off and man, I'm like really dragging the story out. <laughs> it's alright. It's interesting. Because Rebecca Rebecca was born. I went back to school. I'm taking classes I'm wrestling with this call. What does that mean? What does that look like? And someone had said, take a class through the course of study through our Nazarene program. Mm-hmm. And I just couldn't get away from it. And so one Sunday I was sitting there and Dr. Carl Lath was preaching. Mm-hmm. I have no idea what he was preaching about, but I remember distinctly the spirit saying, I'm calling you to preach the gospel and you're sitting on the fence. And if you're going to follow me and be obedient, you're going to preach the gospel. And so I was like the first one to the altar. I don't even know if they had an altar call. I just, I'm like, I'm you going anyway. anyway. <laughs> I went to the altar because I'm like, it was not an audible voice, but it was one of those heavy, heavy impressions mm-hmm. on your soul where mm-hmm. it like stops your, like you catch your breath. Yeah. And your mom came and prayed with me at the altar. And she said, how can I pray for you, friend? <laughs> and I said, God, and I started crying. I said, God wants me to be a pastor. And she laughed and said, that's okay. He calls women too. And huh. Was that the first time you'd said that out loud? Yeah. I, anticip- I think I was anticipating ordination, but I still wasn't really sure but I really hadn't, I was going to write Bible studies. That's okay. what I was going to do. That mm-hmm. was what I thought I was supposed to do, which mm-hmm. maybe one day I will. I mean, yeah. I guess technically I write one every Sunday, but. And then I knew I needed, to, I was going to be a pastor. And, uh-huh. Yeah. And preach. Like, okay. Like he made it very clear. Uh-huh. So when you started the course of study, it wasn't necessarily with the intention of becoming a pastor. Right. But God revealed that plan to you. Yeah. Somewhere along the way. When you um, accepted that call to ministry, did you foresee challenges uh, related to your gender? Or was that sort of a 
something that caught you by surprise? It's kind of a hard question to answer because in the beginning, when I first came to faith in Christ, and as I was reading the scriptures, because I said I read 75% of the Bible within the first six months, it never occurred to me that being a woman in ministry would be an issue. Mm -hmm. Like, I guess I didn't think about being a pastor yet at that point. Mm -hmm. But I was very aware of what nuns did. I think most Protestants have no idea what nuns do. They can't be priests. No, they can't be priests. It's a completely different order. But nuns are extremely instrumental. The desert mothers wrote theology right alongside the Mm -hmm. desert fathers. Um, They started their own orders. They taught. They started schools. They started orphanages. They started rescue missions. They were very instrumental in the kingdom, in kingdom work. So it never really occurred to me that I couldn't do that. It never, so it, it just it just never crossed my mind. And then some really, really well-meaning people uh, told me that women can't be pastors. Hmm. It really took me back. So I'm like, okay. So then I had to examine all this stuff and, and kind of fight back against that. So I think... That's why I say I really, I really believe I did have that call early on within the mm-hmm. first couple of years after coming to faith. Mm-hmm. But because of some people who came into my life, so undid some organic work that God was doing in my life already. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't hold anything against them now. <laughs> but it took it took a long time yeah. when I when I finally realized the truth. And really started searching the scriptures and understanding the Wesleyan view of scripture, um, and coming back around. Then I then I dealt with some anger because I felt like there was years I lost. Yeah, that I had to re I lost ground mm-hmm. and I had to regain that ground, and and so I was I was angry for a while. Mm-hmm. I like man, I could have been ordained already and whatever mm-hmm. doing stuff, um, and then I just lost years. Because I had to unlearn some bad theology, and you realize then that you were right. You were right all along. You know, like what you sensed God leading you to at the beginning turned out to be that's exactly what you were supposed to be doing, and sort of had to reaffirm what you already knew in the first place. Do you think that was how long ago was that that you started? Uh, like you accepted the call to be a pastor. How long ago was that 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 happened? Mm, I'm going to say 2000, maybe. Almost 20 years. Almost 20 years. Do you think that the landscape has changed for women coming into ministry now? In some ways, I think it's much better. Mm-hmm. I think we've made some ground. I'll definitely say that we've made ground in our in my where I live, in my geographic area. Mm-hmm. It's not the case in other parts of the country. So I'm part of this council for women clergy. I was, I'm just talking with some other women clergy in other states. Mm-hmm. 
and hearing their stories, and some of them are horrific. Some of it is unintentional or invisible discrimination. Mm-hmm. Like I don't like I don't think the pers- the people discriminating against them realize that they're doing it. Mm-hmm. And then some of it is just outright blatant discrimination. Uh, but I, I think in some ways it really it has. I, it's become, if nothing else, it's become less acceptable to be blatantly discriminatory. Okay. Well, that's that's improvement. So yeah, I would say that's improvement. <laughs> well, and there, and you mentioned being part of a council for women clergy, um, and this part of the country. It sounds like you've been able to, as a group, do some advocating and encouraging women who are new to, to ministry or encouraging each other. Some of you are not new to ministry, but we are. We're doing our best to put together more intentional mentoring mm-hmm. for women. So I wanted to talk about your your experiences as a pastor. Um, um, you know, like we both like Malcolm Gladwell and how he talks about his, everybody should have their 10,000 hours of experience. <laughs> So I think you're beyond the 10,000 hours at this point. But um, can you talk a little bit about maybe your early assignments um, in ministry and how those shaped you and sort of helped you to become who you are? I came, let's see, 2004 to 2010. Mm -hmm. I was pastor of... Well, I think my official title was Pastor of Outreach and Assimilation, Mm -hmm. but then everybody thinks of Star Trek, so (laughs) I tell people I was Pastor of Outreach and Evangelism, which is really more what I did, and that was was my passion. That was kind of a whole weird thing, how I came on staff there, but I focused on helping to create a safe place Mm -hmm. for people to take their next step Mm -hmm. of faith, so that was really my focus and it was a tough assignment i i think it was a tough assignment very challenging so i oversaw volunteers Mm -hmm. for a couple different areas and there were some of my volunteers who did not think women should be ordained which always was bizarre to me that they wanted to be on my team though (laughs) Um, and so i had some of that those challenges in fact i had my district license for almost two years before I could, they would finally allow me to serve communion. But I just gave Joanne a really shocked look on my face. <laughs> Is that genuine shock? That was genuine shock. Oh, you did? Okay, so you don't know this story. No, I assumed that any any man who looked nice in a suit and then women who were uber spiritual could serve communion and you would have been considered uber spiritual because you were... Okay, a licensed so, minister. I, I wasn't on staff yet, but I had my district license. So in the Church of the Nazarene, once you have your license, you're considered a clergy, and that's good for one year. And then you have to keep they keep checking in on you, make sure you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. So education and service, time mm-hmm. of service. I had my district license, and I wanted to serve communion. And at this particular time, uh, where I was in the church, where I was at, only men served communion. But I wanted to serve communion. And not because I was a woman. I just wanted to serve communion. It was a big deal, especially in the Catholic Church. Uh-huh. It's it's a big deal. Uh-huh. So my Catholic roots really fed into that. Mm-hmm. And so they kept they kept asking in the bulletin for volunteers. And so I fill out the little card. 
and nobody's responding. And so then I then I did come on staff. So this went on for several months, and then I came on staff. I started filling out the cards again because I'm like I really want to help serve communion. Mm-hmm. I went to my senior pastor and said, "Look, somebody needs to explain to me why I am on staff as pastor of outreach and evangelism. I have my district license, but I'm not allowed to serve communion." He said, I think I know the problem. And we, we had this thing that we did where the associate pastor would stand up by the communion table, and so the ushers would all file in together, and then they would hand the communion trays to all the ushers, mm-hmm. and then the ushers would disperse them. And the ushers were all men at that time. And they were all men. So my senior pastor said, you're going to help Dr. Dillman serve communion. The two of us stood on the either end of the altar, and as mm-hmm. the ushers came through, I handed the communion trays to the ushers. He said, and then when you get to the last tray, you're going to bring it up on the platform, and you're going to serve me in front of everyone. Wow, you got, like, promoted above the ushers at that point. Yeah, so for, like, the next two <laughs> years, every time we had communion, I was there handing the plates to the ushers, and then I would walk on the platform and serve the senior pastor. So... So there's, wow, there's a gender-related challenge for you. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And the other, well, I guess he was ordained, but the associate pastor that you're talking about never had any trouble being allowed to serve communion, I don't think. Um, what were some helpful things that uh, mentors did for you or said to you or things that you really took from that time that were meaningful to you? At that time, we did not have any official policies that you had to have a mentor. Mm-hmm. Since that has that has changed since then, mm-hmm. and so I did not really have a mentor, but I had people that I looked to. Mm-hmm. So my senior pastor was one of them. I really gleaned a lot from Dr. Jan Deuce. She's uh, she was teaching some of the classes at the time, mm-hmm. and then there were a couple of lay people like your mom who were uber spiritual <laughs> and poured into me. <laughs> probably why it's been so important to me once I did get ordained that if I, as I saw people, women coming through the course of study, I would go and say to them, here's what you need to know. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I've stumbled through it and had to figure it out on my own. Tell me again, say your your question again. I was just asking um, what valuable things your mentors had, had helped you with or things that had been said to you that were meaningful that you took away from that time when I was wrestling with the call to ministry about whether to, because we can go two different tracks in mm-hmm. our denomination, so elder mm-hmm. or deacon. And she said, if you were a man, what would you do? I said, oh, I know exactly what I'd do. She said, well, then do it. So you chose the elder track. And then Ron Blake said to me, I, I, see, I see the call on your life. And to do the things you really need to do, you're not going to be able to do them here. And what we really need are women planting churches. Because hmm. I wanted to ask you some questions about being a church planter. Um, it's interesting to me earlier when you said what your job was as pastor of outreach and evangelism. And you described that job. And it sounds like 
really similar to the vision that you had for the church that you've planted. So I think it's interesting that you kind of took what you were doing there and really sort of created a place to, to be, you know, next step place for people to come and ask questions about faith and get involved somehow, somewhere. I I thought that was interesting when you described that earlier. What were some things about planting a church that, um, that surprised you? I haven't had a lot of surprises. That's good. Maybe because I, I don't know. I want, I want I think I've said all along because I was, I had so many surprises in my previous assignment <laughs> that I'm like, Oh, nothing surprises me anymore. But because of the vision and the passion for mm-hmm. it, the last eight years definitely been the best eight years of ministry. Mm-hmm. Um, not that there hasn't been tough times and times mm-hmm. I wanted to quit and times that I've definitely cried and had way too many cups of coffee. I guess surprising was how, I don't, not, not work, but how much patience you need to have. Mm-hmm. A lot, a lot of patience, especially because of the people group we're trying to reach. So mm-hmm. we really were targeting atheist agnostics and unchurched Catholics. Mm-hmm. I would say targets. So I was like, we're going to, we're hunting them. It's not what I meant. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But that was, that was the group that you felt passionate about. Yeah, that uh-huh. was a group we felt passionate about. Mm-hmm. And that's how we painted the picture. So just to be able to speak the gospel language in a way that atheist agnostics and unchurched Catholics would hear, you have to have a lot of patience mm-hmm. because it's very rare that someone hears the gospel for the first time and then they're there every single Sunday and they're in Bible study and they're singing mm-hmm. in the in the band and mm-hmm. volunteering in the nursery, mm-hmm. right? That's it, just not the way it works. Mm-hmm. Even in my own conversion, there was a lot of time that led up to me having that radical conversion. Mm-hmm. Um, it Once I made that commitment, I, yeah, I had a radical transformation fast, but that's not normal. My husband's was much more drawn out over mm-hmm. several years and mm-hmm. that's how most people are. And so, so you're doing ministry with all of these new people who know nothing about church or nothing about the Bible or nothing about serving and, and you're trying to get stuff done and everybody's moving more slowly than you want yeah, them to move very slowly. Yeah. So I did have some people who they knew how to, I want to say do church, right? Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So they showed up, they served, they tithe, but they didn't have a lot of patience and they're like, why aren't these new people getting with the program? Mm-hmm. And after three years or four years or five years, they're just like, I'm tired. I feel bad. <laughs> I feel bad for them because I understand that they're tired. Mm-hmm. Like I have a call on my life. Mm-hmm. They don't have that same call. Mm-hmm. So then you're trying to replace people and try to give people breaks was there anything about being a lead pastor that you were excited about? Like, yes, now that I'm a lead pastor, I get to do such and such that you didn't get to do as a staff pastor. Yeah. Well, let me just say, not excited about annual pastor report. 
I was going to ask you also if there were things about being a lead pastor that you weren't so keen on. <laughs> Since we just did it. Uh, I love to preach. Oh, part of me feels like that sounds arrogant, but I love to preach. Mm-hmm. It's Jeremiah said, there's it's, your word is like a fire shot up in my bones. Mm-hmm. And that is how I feel. Mm-hmm. You know, and when I get up on Sundays, I, it feels like this fire shut up in my bones mm-hmm. and I need to release it, you know, or I will spontaneously combust, you mm-hmm. know, I'm, uh, I'm learning to love to share the pulpit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I am enjoying sharing the pulpit. But only because I'm pouring into other people. Uh huh. If it was just sharing it to share it, then uh-huh. I would enjoy it. But yeah, being able to really share the vision and remind people why we're here. Mm-hmm. We're here for the people who aren't here yet. Yeah. Is there? Um, so we've been at the this church plant thing. Are we even still a church plant, or are we just now a? I, know, I keep pushing it back. I say, well, technically we planned it eight years ago, but then a year later we moved to this facility. And then two years after that, we bought the building. And then a year after that, we changed our name. So really, oh, that's true. How like, old are we even really? So if you go by the, we changed our name. We're only like four years old. Huh. I hadn't even thought of it that way. Five, if you count when we bought the facility. Okay. Uh, you're talking about the patients and waiting for things to happen. Is there any um, story that you want to share or feel like you can share about where God has done something that took a lot longer than you thought, but has done something pretty amazing? That Do you have an idea? <laughs> Are you thinking of one in particular? Not necessarily. I, you know, a hundred small ways. I mean, a... And I guess none of them are small when you really think about it. You're the lead worship. You're the worship director. You were the worship director when we started, mm-hmm. and we had more people in the band <laughs> than we had in the pews. It was so weird. I'd be like, the band used to go sit down, so I have somebody to preach to now. <laughs> and then we went through this, which that was really cool. And I tell your story, but I remember you guys saying, okay, we don't really know anything about this whole how to plan a church. Uh huh. And I'm like, if new people come in and we send them to you in the band, will you take care of them? And you're like, yeah, we can do that. So then we went through the season where we lost like almost all of our band. Yeah. Like for different reasons. Uh-huh. They either started serving in different areas or they relocated out of state yeah. or they died or they, uh-huh. yeah. you know, like, and we had nobody. Yeah. And so we had what, for about a year and a half, two years, maybe mm-hmm. where we had two or three people who would rotate and get up on Sunday morning and sing mm-hmm. using YouTube videos. Mm-hmm. Okay. Was Pastor Lynn on staff? We were still doing that, right? Or we just started back in the band. We, we were back to, when she came on staff, I went back to doing band because I had That's sort right. of taken a, uh, hiatus into children's ministry for a while. Yeah. So Pastor Linda came on staff and then you went back to the band, but it was still like, mm-hmm. I didn't have hardly anybody playing with me. And... Right. We have, we, we lost our drummer. Now we have a drummer. <laughs> we got a bass player. We got a guitar player. We have two guitar players. Yeah. We have a, a flautist. If she comes back, mm-hmm. <laughs> she's taking a little break. Yeah. We have like 
five or six vocalists, right? Mm -hmm. So that was that was pretty cool. Praying again, seeing all that kind of come to fruition, and then what was really endearing for me was about a year after we bought the church, um, you and the rest of the board, because you were on the board at that time, came and said, you know, if this is our vision, we really need to change our name. Oh, I, I felt so bad having that conversation with you. <laughs> I felt like I was asking you to change your children's names. Yeah. And I knew it was, I knew it was going to hurt. And I wasn't going to say anything more about it. I mentioned it once and I thought, I'm done, God. I said what I think you told me to say and I'm, I'm not going to say anything more about it. It's in your court slash Joanne's court. <laughs> yeah. Well, our vision is to transform the community with the love of Christ by making the neighborhood church relevant mm-hmm. once again. Mm-hmm. And the name of the neighborhood is Devonair. And so you and the rest of the board were like, if we're going to, that's our vision, mm-hmm. our name should reflect it. Mm-hmm. We should adopt the name of the community that we're trying to transform. And as much as I really, really was attached to Plumline, mm-hmm. what was profound to me was it was an f- affirmation from God that not only was I teaching and preaching the vision, but that the congregation was receiving the vision. Mm-hmm. And that is hard to do. Hmm. Like, I I don't take that lightly. I know that that was the Spirit's doing. In fact, I've had two or three people call me since we've changed our name and say, how did you convince your board? And I said, well, <laughs> preach the vision, <laughs> preach the vision some more, and then preach it some more. Mm-hmm. And then your name should line up with your vision. <laughs> um, there should be a purpose, right? Mm-hmm. You think about it, right? In the Bible, all their names lined up with the vision of their mm-hmm. lives. Well, it was one of those moments where God said, see, mm-hmm. you're on, you're going in the right direction. You're on the right track. Well, and speaking of our neighborhood, can you give us some examples of ways that we've been able to connect with our neighborhood and the relationships we're developing? Well, we first moved in, we tried to connect up with the homeowners association and they wanted to have nothing to do with us. We did first year here, we did trunk or treat and we, it was really warm that that year. It was like 70 degrees Mm -hmm. for Halloween. It was crazy. Mm -hmm. And we had like 200 kids come. And the only reason I know is because Rob and I had bought 200 full size candy bars and they were gone. And so (laughs) when we had to go steal candy from other people, so we had all these, all these kids come and then in the spring uh, our homeowners association does a they run a a soccer six weeks of soccer it's kind of introduction inexpensive introduction to soccer we do it every Saturday morning and we were having a church work day we decided that we would take them coffee and lemonade and I, I walked around to all the people sitting around the perimeters and said, hey, we just want you to know there's free lemonade and coffee. Help yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you need to use the bathroom, the bathrooms are open. And nobody would come up to the table. <laughs> so finally I'm like, okay, let's go inside. Because I don't think they're going to come and get coffee and lemonade if we're standing there. Like, look out the window like, and watch. And they'd 
come up to the table and take some stuff mm-hmm. and then run back to where they were sitting. And um, they just didn't know what to do with us, if they could mm-hmm. trust us. We could stay out there and talk to them and have mm-hmm. conversation. We've had people ask us for prayer. Some of those families, because they knew us through that, said yes to some of our other events that we've had and mm-hmm. then started coming to the church. Well, um, the story I was thinking of most recently was that our names ended up in the in the program at the high oh, school yeah. for their play. So after the soccer thing, then it kind of started becoming this, started snowballing a little bit. So the drama teacher called me up and wanted to know if they could use a room. And she asked me for a business card. So I said, okay, I just gave her one. Well, they put it in the program. So here we have all these high schoolers and all the people attending the mm-hmm. drama mm-hmm. with seeing our name in there. And it's, we're getting to a place now where our reputation in the community is preceding us. Yeah. Well, and the softball league stores their equipment in our garage. Yeah. So um seems like we've built some nice, nice relationships with the community where I think people are starting to remember that there's a church in this neighborhood, which my husband and I live in the neighborhood. And uh, for a long time, I even, I forgot there was a church here. It's making a difference, I think. Um So what are you reading these days? I am reading... Dr. Yarhouse's book, Understanding Sexual Identity. And I am reading a book on rhetoric. And then I'm reading a preaching book. And I just started another book called Talk to Me. So it's written by a journalist. Actually, he started the journalism program at Point Loma. What was the last not? Um, what was the last fiction book you read? Harry Potter <laughs> and the Sorcerer's Stone. <laughs> I read it over Christmas break because my kids said I had to. It's only what twenty years old, something like that. <laughs> I I don't I I don't read fiction books, so it's just not my thing. I used to read them a lot in high school. But I used to read all those horror stories. Oh, yeah. Once hmm. I got introduced to nonfiction, and hmm. there's just so much out there to pick from. So, but then I keep having people like, "You should really read some fiction. It, I don't know, helps your brain develop. I, I need brain help." So, oh. <laughs> so I read Still Alice, which was super depressing. Uh, very good book, but don't recommend. Hmm. Only because it's depressing, and and so then I read Harry Potter. Okay. So in the last two years, I've read two fiction books. <laughs> And countless nonfiction, probably. I bet you don't even know uh, yeah, how many last, nonfiction books you've yeah. read. Usually I read about 50 <laughs> books a year. Last year, personal stuff, I only read 36 books. Oh, that's I, all? Yeah. <laughs> that's sarcasm. <laughs> I think that's... I, I'm done with questions, I think. Unless, is there anything you want me to ask you? I don't think so. Okay. We talked a really long time. We did. About, like... An hour and 20 minutes. I didn't ask you how long you wanted it to be. I was just like, I have all these questions. So I thought that was, I see, I learned more things about you today that I didn't know before. Some of it I already knew, but there's a lot I didn't. So that was interesting. Well, I appreciate you helping me out. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I've had a few ask me for my own story. Yeah. You being one of them. Uh Uh-huh. Well, you have such a great story. And I remember when, you probably don't remember this, but I remember a long time ago when you were, 
talking about some of the things that you shared in this interview about reading um, John for the first time and that the Lord opened your eyes to things that you hadn't known before. I remember listening to your testimony and saying, oh, your testimony is so interesting. You have such a great testimony. Mine is so boring. And uh, you were like, I hope and pray that my kids have the most boring testimony of anybody out there. And it really, I really realized that was kind of an insensitive thing for me to say. <laughs> I'm grateful now for having a boring testimony, but I'm also grateful that, you know, you're, you are willing to share the things that God did in your life yeah. um, that were kind of dramatic. We all have our own challenges. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I know that just because I know your story, that you've had your own share of challenges. but That's true. But I don't have a radical conversion story. <laughs> but you do have a God has been faithful. I do have a very strong God has been faithful story. That's true. Thanks for all that you're doing to pour into younger pastors or newer pastors. Yep. It um, means a lot to see the trail that you've blazed and that you're making sure to turn around and help others. 